Alright, we're going to be reading out of 1 Timothy 3 tonight. So if you guys want to turn there in your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, this, this week and next week, we will be in verses 1 through 7 of 1 Timothy 3. Those are, in, depending on what translation you're reading out of, it'll say something like qualifications for overseers or qualifications for elders. So tonight, we're going to be talking about just the first section of those verses, uh, verses, 1 to, uh, verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 3. And then next week, we're going to turn and take a look at the family illustration that he uses in verses 4 and following through the end and talk about how those things relate to each other. But tonight, we'll be talking specifically about what I want to call the anatomy of the pastor, the anatomy of the pastor. So what is the job description or requirements that are put together uh, for these roles? But to start, I want to uh, ask for your participation a little bit. Because I went on Indeed.com today, and I looked up various job descriptions of various jobs. Uh, not, the, not the schooling requirements, but what I would call the aptitude of the character requirements. So I'm going to list for you a couple, and I'm going to ask you to guess what job you think it is. Okay? So the first, this is all one, one aptitude requirement. First job, str- requires strong interpersonal communication skills. The ability to remain calm in crisis and to help others remain calm. Strong attention to detail, highly organized, attentive to the welfare of others, strong critical thinking and problem-solving skills, authoritative and assertive when necessary. Human resources. resources. (laughs) Other guesses? Nurse. Nurse. A teacher. A nurse. It's a nurse. It's a nurse. So that is Indeed.com's quality (laughs) descriptions. That That is their description for... Uh, huh? Beyond education, beyond your formal education, they would say these are things that are required of someone who's going to be a nurse. So uh, that's one. Now let's see if you can do the second one. The ability to effectively communicate with others and clearly express complex ideas. Proficient and active listening skills to both understand and adapt various needs. The knowledge of appropriate psychology and underlining styles of learning, strong public speaking and oral presentation skills, excellent organization and time management skills, advanced technology skills, and then leadership skills as well as patience. Teacher. Teacher, guys. I said, I said, I almost said students as I was reading the description. It's a teacher. It's a teacher. Okay. All right, last one. Uh, this one, you might, uh, I don't know. We'll see if you get it drop. For men, the minimum requirement is the ability to do three pull-ups. For women, one pull-up. For the men, they must run one and a half miles in a minimum of 13 minutes and 30 seconds. For a female, one and a half miles must be run in a minimum of 15 minutes. And both genders, male and female, must be able to plank for a minimum of 40 seconds. Nurse. <laughs> Good guess. This is what's called the initial strength test. So not the final strength test, but the initial strength test for the United States Marine Corps. Yeah. The initial. The initial. Okay. There's other physical requirements along the way, but those are what we call the minimum requirements. Okay. Here's the point of all that. 
whatever job you're going for, whatever role you're going to be serving, has varying requirements for that job. And so, and what we have in the text of 1 Timothy tonight, what we're about to read together, is something like a, not a job description of degrees, which, of which those are obviously relevant to training and things like that, but what Paul lists for us here is something like a, uh, what we call the more hard to understand characteristics, right? You can't earn a degree, for example, in patience, but certain jobs require that you have patience, right? You can't earn a degree, for instance, in being uh, strong in critical thinking or assertive in crisis moments, and yet that's what is required of a nurse. So what we have here in the text is what we would say is something like that for what's called the office of an overseer. And so let's look at those qualifications and then let's back up and ask the question, how do we make sense of these verses? So verse uh, one of chapter three begins with uh, a euphemism of Paul, uh, a statement that kind of repeats itself throughout the text. In fact, we've already seen this statement in chapter one, verse 15, where he says, this saying is trustworthy. Uh, in chapter three, verse one, it says, once again, this is a trustworthy saying, or this is a saying that is trustworthy. If a certain person aspires to be an overseer, that person desires a good work, or we might say a noble task. It is necessary that an overseer be above reproach. An overseer must be a one-woman man. They must be temperate. They must be self-controlled. They must be respectable. They must be hospitable. They must be apt to teach. They must not be a slave to wine, nor must they be violent, but rather gentle. They must be peaceable, and they must not be a lover of money. Now, I'm going to pause there because in verse 4, he begins with more what we would say are familial kind of qualifications. We'll talk more about those next week. But just in, in these verses, we have something like a, a non-tangible set of characteristics. Now, you can't say, I have a diploma in this and, and show it. Uh, but these are what we would call necessary requirements for someone who's going to serve in the office of what's called here in the text, uh, depending on your translation, it will say overseer. Uh, to get a little bit into the weeds on this, uh, the term that underlies your English translation overseer is where the, we get the English term episcopal from, the episkopos, the one who oversees things. Uh, some translations will render that a bishop. So these are the same kind of office. There's another term which we often refer to uh, with this same set of qualifications. We would say these are elders. Those are often linked together. That's a different term, the term presbyteros, from where we get the English term presbyter, if you've ever heard of a Presbyterian. Uh, and then there's one more Greek term which underlies what we're going to talk about tonight, and that's the one I introduced you in English at the beginning when I said we're talking about the anatomy of a pastor. Um, that's a different term. And we're going to talk about why or if these words are related and why are they used in, in kind of interchangeable fashion often. So consider this. Uh, in the text tonight, all we're seeing is the term overseer. That's what Paul is laying out. So here's the question. Why do we often refer to these individuals as elders and in many American churches also as pastors? Why do we link those ideas together? So to lay the foundation of that, we first have to bounce around in the text a little bit uh, to other things which came before the pastoral epistles. And then from there, we're going to come back to 1 Timothy and ask the question, what is required of these persons? So first, we're going to try to understand how is the term overseer, elder, and pastor linked in the text? So in 1 Timothy 3, we have overseer. Put, your, put a uh, pin in that. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, 
I'd like you to turn there. First Peter chapter one, we have uh, Peter's description. Oh, I apologize. It's First Peter five, not First Peter one. And this is uh, Peter speaking to those who are, well, we'll see what he refers to them as in the text. So this is uh, 1 Peter 5, just beginning in verse 1. He says, shepherd, uh, or sorry, in the ESV, it's under the title, shepherd the flock of God. But in the actual Greek text, it says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So there we have presbyteros, presbyteros, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. What we have in 1 Peter 5 is the command, in this case, to elders, different term than in 1 Timothy, but a linked idea. And he says to them, you are to, well, the verb is to shepherd, which is where we get the English term to pastor from. A pastor is a shepherd. And he he correlates their work, not with just a human level work, but he actually says, so that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So who is the chief shepherd? We could all assume, well, that's probably Christ, the one who shepherds his flock. But now we have to ask the question, where do we get the idea that Christ is the chief shepherd? So we could go to a bunch of places. We could go to John's gospel where he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. Uh, We could go to the end of John's gospel, John chapter 21, where Jesus is talking to Peter. And he is restoring Peter back into ministry after Peter has denied him. And you'll remember at that time, well, if you uh, are familiar with that text, there's this back and forth interaction where Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And he says, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my lambs. And so the point is, what Jesus is doing is he's instituting Peter to a position of authority, and the job he's giving to Peter is feed the sheep, or or do what a shepherd does, pastor the flock. So this role of the shepherd is a paradigm for what an elder and an overseer does in the text, at least as it's linked in 1 Peter and there at the end of John's gospel. But I want you to see that idea is not something that's new in the New Testament. In fact, if you go to Ezekiel 34 in your Old Testaments, we have this exact same image used of the spiritual leaders over Israel. So you remember Ezekiel writes uh, during the time of the captivity. He writes uh, prophetic uh, in many of his uh, writings talking about Israel's need for restoration. And in Ezekiel 34, you have this wonderful image of what we would say are the the shepherds of Israel, uh, particularly contrasting them with the true shepherd of Israel who will come and rightly shepherd uh, the people. So this is Ezekiel 34, uh, I'll read in verse one. The word of the Lord came to me, that's Ezekiel, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves while you should have been shepherds. Should you not have been shepherds? Feed the sheep. You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injury you have not bound up. 
The strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, with force and with harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, and they wandered all over the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with no one to search for them. And there he condemns in verse 7, Therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and I will not, and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves, because I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, so they will no longer be food before them. So in Ezekiel, the contrasting idea is that Jesus is a shepherd, but that's not an idea out of a vacuum in the New Testament. That's an idea that is is pregnant with imagery in the Old Testament, particularly as it's the religious leaders who are responsible to guard Israel. They're not just Levites. They're not just prophets. They're, They're considered as shepherds. They're the ones who are responsible for the oversight of the people of God. And it is out of that imagery, and actually the negative image of those shepherds failing to guard the flock of God, that we get Jesus saying in the New Testament, I am the good shepherd, or as we studied in Luke's gospel when I've read these verses before, he's the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes to find the lost sheep because that's what the good shepherd does. He doesn't let his sheep remain scattered in the world. So it's with this imagery in the background and Jesus saying to Peter as an apostle, you are to feed my sheep, that we get somewhat of the sketch of of what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 5 when he says the elders are to be shepherds of the flock. They're to shepherd those who are entrusted to them. There's one more place uh, in the New Testament where these verses are linked together, these ideas, which is in Acts chapter 20. So this is when the New Testament uh, really acts as the, what you would say, the history of the New Testament church. It's the unfolding events in narratival form of how these churches are formed, how the mission goes forth, how the spirit is moving and working and converting people. And in Acts chapter 20, this is right before Paul is kind of going to his final imprisonment and ultimately to his death at the end of the book. But he meets up with the elders of the church in Ephesus, which he's already planted. And he meets up with them. And this is in uh, chapter 20. First, in, uh, I want you to look in verse, 11, uh, verse 17 of chapter 20. He, he, some, he says, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So the people who he's going to be discussing with now are the elders of the church in Ephesus. That's that word presbyteros, right? Different from overseer. But here, what he says to them in, uh, beginning in verse 26, he's first talking about himself. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul's saying, this is what I've done to you. I am innocent of blood, and he's going to exhort them to also preach the whole counsel of God. But verse 28 is is where we want to focus in on. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Uh, episcopuses, to care for the church of God, which he has obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day and night to admonish everyone with tears. So we have Paul now telling the Ephesian elders, hey, let me give you a picture of what your job is like. You are to be shepherds, who oversee the flock, which you are in charge of. He actually says you're to be elders who oversee the flock, which you are in charge of. But if they're overseeing the flock, that means they're the shepherds of the flock. 
And then he even con continues that image further when he says, wolves are going to come in among the flock, which are going to assail the flock, and your job is to guard the flock from these assailants. So he's using the shepherd imagery, which Ezekiel picks up on and Jesus picks up on. And he's saying, if you want to know what an elder and an overseer is, their job is to shepherd the flock of God. They're to watch over the people of God. Now, this is why in English we get the term pastor from. A pastor is simply a shepherd. It's just a, a sloppy, what we would call a transliteration, meaning someone didn't actually translate the term. They just copy and pasted it from one language into another. Because um, to shepherd is to pastor. And so this is, this is where we get the term from. But uh, we're seeing here in, in Paul's letter to Timothy the anatomy of a pastor, the anatomy of a shepherd, the anatomy of an elder, the anatomy of an overseer, one who does this work. Now, you might have noticed it in Acts 20, uh, where he mentions uh, in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. It's interesting. Paul says almost that exact same phrase to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, where he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the doctrine for by so doing, you will save not only yourself, but also your hearers. So he gives almost the same elder exhortation to Timothy in that context. So just because Paul in our text tonight is talking specifically about overseers, that does not mean he's talking about anything different than when he says elders, because we see those terms are rather fluid with each other. And also it means he's, he's also talking about pastors. So in our churches today, in, in particularly in the Western church, we, we need to not be uncomfortable with the idea of calling someone an overseer, an elder, or a pastor. Those are all synonymous terms for kind of the same thing, the same office. They're used interchangeably. And so then, then we get into the meat and potatoes of uh, the text itself, which is we would say, okay, we've established these are, let's say, terms that have overlapping meaning. Now the question is, what is actually, what is this person who has this title actually responsible for? So uh, Paul says it in verse 1 of 1 Timothy 3. If a certain person aspires to be an overseer, they desire a noble task. Some English translations render that noble task. It's actually the same phrase uh, that Paul says earlier in the text about women who dress modestly. They are to pursue good works, right, in keeping with godliness. It's actually the same phrase here. He says that the man, the overseer who desires to be an overseer, desires a, a good work, a noble task. He desires something right before God. And then he's going to lay out the qualifications for one who meets these requirements. And so he says it is necessary that an overseer be above reproach. An overseer must be someone who is above reproach. And that phrase must be, what an overseer must be, governs the entirety of the list from verse 2 through verse 3. Uh, we could insert the phrase they must be before every one of those descriptive characters because Paul is just listing a bunch of single words to describe what a pastor is to be. So first one, they must be above reproach. Now what this does not mean is that they need to have a perfect reputation with no one who can ever accuse them of anything. Because if you know anything about our world today, uh, Christians can just be faithful Christians and be put on blast by people in the world who will uh, accuse them, who will slander them, who will say all kinds of things about them. So the question of what does it mean to be above reproach is not in the court of popular opinion, what is above reproach, but we would say in this case, more narrowly, in the church of God, they are to be above reproach. Meaning, when Christians look at them and their conduct, they're the kinds of people who we would say we respect. Now, you're starting to see this is not a diploma kind of category. This is more of a soft characteristic that must mark out the men who are qualified for this task. They are to be 
above reproach. Someone who, if you heard something they did, someone is accusing them of something, let's say slanderous. I shouldn't say slanderous. Let's say someone's accusing them of something insane. Something you should, you should think, that doesn't fit with who I know them to be. That doesn't mean it's not true, by the way, because we know that elders can disqualify themselves from the office that they aspire towards. And actually, Paul says in, in 1 Timothy, you can accept a charge against an elder on the basis of two or three witnesses, but the point is, uh, this is not the kind of person who, if you heard they did something, you'd be like, oh yeah, that kind of matches you know, what I'd expect them to do. This is the kind of person who you'd be shocked to hear if they did something wicked or sinful or vile in the community. So there's someone who's above reproach, someone who walks around and uh, carries respect with them. They also must be a one-woman man, or some of your translations might say a husband of one wife. Now we have a question, an interpretive problem. What does it mean to be a husband of one wife? It can mean A, that they must be married in order to be elders. It can mean B, uh, they must only have one wife forever. It can mean C, they must be monogamous, meaning they can't have polygamous relationships. Or D, uh, they must be faithful in marriage or celibate apart from marriage. So when we're evaluating this text of what Paul says here, we have to balance this with the teaching of the broader New Testament, like Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul actually says about himself, I am a single person, right? I am single. And so it would be strange for Paul to exhort Timothy to be uh, aspiring to the office of elder, himself being the one who institutes that office, and then also not himself be qualified for that office. You see what I'm saying? So, so Paul, when he writes, we know he's doing most of his ministry as a single person. And so what Paul doesn't mean here is he likely doesn't mean they must be married in order to qualify for the office. But likely, it's a, a euphemistic phrase for saying they must be in keeping with the sexual ethic of Christians. Or we might say it uh, the way the Old Testament would say it, uh, you shall not commit adultery. Right? You should be someone who keeps with the law of God. So to, for them to be a one-woman man means faithfulness to that one wife within marriage, or if not married, celibacy. That's kind of what that means. And it also leaves open, and you guys can talk about this in your discussion groups, uh, the question of divorce. If there, is there ever a right or wrong time for a man to be divorced? Uh, and if so, what are, would that person ever be able to be qualified to be an elder? I'll leave that one open for discussion. So they must be above reproach. They must be a one-woman man. They must be temperate, or uh, some of your translations might say self-controlled, they, they must be the kind of person who's sober-minded. They must be a sober individual, meaning they don't, they're not volatile. You come to them, and they don't freak out and make spontaneous decisions. They're the kind of person who gives good, careful, wise counsel, thinks carefully about things, is, is a careful individual. They're the kind of person you would trust to come to for advice. In fact, the, the term that's used here actually refers to someone who doesn't struggle with alcoholism, so they're sober, which is what many of your English translations will render it as. And the idea even in English carries more than just they're not a drunk. It also means they think carefully, they think responsibly about things which they are considering and decisions they're making. So an elder must be that. They must be sober-minded or temperate. Additionally, they must be self-controlled, one, uh, one who is not a victim of their passions or impulses. They must have control over their emotions. They must have control over their tongue. They must be the kind of person who they don't say often, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. They're the kind of person who is, is well in control of who they are because why? 
Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And an elder is to be a mature Christian, one who is bearing fruit of the Spirit. So it makes sense that their qualification for self-control is manifest in their lives. What he's just saying there is they're a mature Christian. They're the kind of person who bears fruit in keeping with their salvation. Additionally, they must be respectable. Now this kind of echoes some of these ideas. You can start to see the overlap. They're to be the kind of person who uh, you look up to, you get good advice from, good counsel from. And then we have another qualification. They must be a hospitable person. They must be someone who we wouldn't say has the gift of hospitality because we know that gift is given in varying uh, degrees by the Spirit. But they must be the kind of person who makes you feel warm, welcome, and invited wherever they're at. It makes sense why that would be a qualification for someone who's to shepherd God's flock. Uh, How can you be a good shepherd if your sheep don't feel welcome uh, in your flock? How could you be a good shepherd if people don't feel cared for by you or, or, or welcomed by you? Uh, most of pastoral ministry is actually done uh, in the home, in quiet conversation, in the, in the early, late hours of the night, in the early hours of the morning. This is when we, we share life together with people. So a pastor is not someone who we would say is primarily a charismatic figure who leads a church from the front. They're actually the kind of person who gets in the weeds with people and uh, has them over for dinner, loves on them on a one-on-one basis. That's the kind of idea here. Additionally, and this is different from the list that we'll see later in 1 Timothy where we talk about the office of a deacon, but they must be apt to teach or able to teach. An elder must be the kind of person who can instruct. Now, Titus chapter 1 verse 9 is helpful here for giving us uh, a further description of this, uh, what he means by this. And so if you'll uh, turn to Titus chapter 1 verse 9. Teaching doesn't just mean being able to articulate right theology. We've talked about this before with Timothy, right? He's, in char- he's charged, when he's charged to teach the church, what's he charged to do? Teach soundly, but also rebuke false doctrine. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says it this way. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So to give instruction does not mean they can just articulate truths. It also means they can look someone who speaks falsely in the face and say, that's wrong, and I can show you why it's wrong. But notice, this is qualified later in 1 Timothy 3 uh, with they must not be a quarrelsome person. They must be peaceable, not violent. So the idea in, in the text is they can refute false doctrine, but they can also distinguish when is something worth fighting over and when is it not worth fighting over. They have tolerance for, well, we might say it this way, the the sheep they're going to be responsible for are going to be on all spectrums of maturity as they walk the Christian life out. Uh, You'll have new Christians, you'll have mature Christians, and everything in between. And so if they're going to give good instruction, they're going to also need to know when is the time to jump on someone because they're believing a dangerous false teaching and, and taking heed of it and when they need to refute it, and when they can just let it be and allow that person to mature over time and possibly come to a more mature theology of whatever they're articulating. An elder needs to be able to do that soberly and make those kinds of judgment calls. In verse 3 of the text of 1 Timothy 3, uh, we see now what we would call the negative qualifications, and there's one positive one mixed in there. Uh, They must not be a slave to wine. They must not be a drunk. 
They must not be the kind of person, for obvious reasons, who is a victim of alcoholism. And that language is even loaded because that implies that sin is not involved in, in the context. The idea is, if they have self-control, one of the things that's going to manifest in is that they're not going to be in any way struggling with alcoholism or in any way uh, struggling with drunkenness. The idea here is they actually are the kind of person who at all times, in season and out of season, is good, sober with judgment, which alcohol obviously disqualifies from beyond a certain limit. This does not mean that you cannot have a sip of alcohol as, as Christians can enjoy alcohol as God's blessing to us. But the idea is that you actually have self-control as you enjoy that thing, right? We are not gluttons. We do not indulge and overindulge in things. But we are called to self-control and enjoyment of God's good graces. An elder is to model this for his church. Similarly, they must not be a violent person, but a gentle person. Now, if you know, uh, obviously, the image we've been using so far of a shepherd, uh, we would say Jesus is very gentle, yes? But also, he's the one who comes uh, heavily down on false teachers to rebuke them, to assail them, and to tell them how wicked their teaching is and speak boldly to their face. So what this means is an elder can't be a pushover. Gentleness does not mean that, they're, that people just walk all over them all the time. The idea is gentleness uh, because they would have the capacity to walk over people. They would have the capacity to do damage, and rightly so, because their, their defense of the church means they're going to be, in some sense, they're going to have the ability to do damage with their tongues, with their minds, with they are going to be, in some sense, warriors for the truth. And ultimately, uh, we see this in uh, 1 Timothy uh, 6, where Paul says to Timothy, uh, you, you must fight the fight of faith. You must hold fast to the word, fight the good fight of faith, which is laid before you. So pastors, in some sense, must be fighters, but aimed in the right direction. They must not be, let's say, abusing the flock, domineering over them. They are to be the people who guard the flock gently, nurturing them, watching over them, caring for them, but guarding them from wolves, Acts, as Acts 20 says. So they must, in some sense, be violent, but not towards their flock. They must be gentle towards their flock. They must be peaceable, uh, which kind of echoes a similar idea earlier in the text, that they're the kind of people who don't quarrel unnecessarily. As Paul has said uh, in 1 Timothy 2, right, the men must not be quarrelsome when they're praying and lifting up holy hands. Well, obviously, the more mature men, the elders, the overseers, they must also match that. They must be peaceable. They must be the kind of people who live lives that model peace. And ultimately, and this is where we'll close in our time tonight, a pastor must not be a lover of money. And that one almost speaks for itself in our world because we know exactly what that leads to if someone indeed is a lover of money. Now, before we went over all of these qualifications, these job descriptions, if you were to uh, ask your average person in the West, what is it you think is required of someone who's going to be a successful pastor in the world? And you can't, you can't give them any contextual clues on that. You have to just go with their experience of Christian church. And you would ask them, put together to me what you think is required of someone who's going to meet this office. What is the list of qualifications you think most Americans would come up with? Attractive, charismatic, well-dressed, good public speaker, good orator, uh, ma matching their target demographic, maybe? And yeah, they should be the kind of person who can roll with the high classes of society. Because that's what we think of when we think of people who we want to follow. We think of the Hollywood actors and actresses, the superheroes, those who, who are above and beyond us. That's who we aspire towards. The idea of a pastor is they're not a super Christian. They're just a mature Christian 
who's shepherding the flock that's on the same trajectory that they are, because a pastor pastors under the authority of the true shepherd, Christ, as 1 Peter 5 says. So the idea is a pastor is not a superhero, an untouchable individual, one who just walks on water and floats through the crowd and anything like that. The job description for, for an elder is here in the text, which means you see nothing of their need to be charismatic. You see nothing of the need to be uh, an influential public speaker. Uh, you see the need to be an apt teacher who can instruct soundly and refute false teaching. You see the need for someone to be respectable, someone who's above reproach. And now I want, you to, I want to leave you with this, and you'll obviously pick this up in discussion as well. But what would it look like if, as a Western church, we actually took this job description seriously and didn't hire or institute anyone into these offices unless they actually met these requirements? What would it look like if we took these descriptions seriously from Christ? What effect do you think that would have in 20 years in the church? 30 years in the church, 200 years in the church. And what effect do you think that would have on culture as a result? Not that our goal is to impact culture, but our goal is certainly not to make fools of ourselves in front of the world. And I think much of the foolishness that the church has engaged in is by ignoring plain commands from God in the text, like a job description for those who are to lead the church. So with that, let me close this in prayer and we can go into discussion. Lord, I thank you for your word, hard as it may be to hear. It is life-giving. We recognize your word is a truth, and it is vibrant. And Lord, how refreshing these words are to hear, how you have instituted your church to be guarded and to be overseen by those who model Christ-likeness in their communities. We recognize that as a fallen creation and people who are being renewed into the image of Christ. Uh, we are all on a journey towards this uh, perfection of the picture that Christ walked. So we will fall short. We will not be perfect. And yet, Lord, you give us high standards to aspire towards. And you demand of those who would lead among us also higher standards to aspire towards. And would that we take your word seriously in these matters. We pray this in your name. Amen.